Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all. I see we have a lot of kids here today. That's good. How many of you kids are fans of the Sing movies? Sing 1 and Sing 2. Raise your hands. We watched those over the holidays. I, I had never seen them. Um, if you haven't seen them, I'm not going to give away a whole lot today, but the, 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 plot is the, the plot is the same for both movies. There's the, the main character is Buster Moon, whose uh, voice is Matthew McConaughey's. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good character for him. But uh, there's this koala bear, Buster Moon. He dreams big dreams, um, and he has huge aspirations to, to be somebody kind of that he's really not, and then to do things that he really, really can't do. And so throughout both movies, he, um, he, he, he gathers people to his efforts, and he, he lies, and he manipulates, and he overextends himself. Um, he really doesn't have an accurate picture of himself, um, and, and in many ways is an imposter, and sometimes throughout the movies, he kind of goes through a little bit of uh, self-doubt and self-loathing, believing that he is an imposter. Um, but, you know, in our age of individual expressivism and the idolizing of self-esteem, as you might expect, everything always works out for, for Buster Moon. All of his dreams uh, come to fruition, and everybody loves him except the really bad guys. And then, you know, so after both of these movies, I was like, what is the point of these movies? Here, here's this main character. He lies, he manipulates, he deceives the bank, he breaks the law, and yet everything comes out in the end, and he's loved, and it's great, and you're crying by the end. And uh, what's the point? And, you know, and obviously it's, it's a cartoon, which means you're not supposed to take it seriously, right? Um, but I, 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 I finished watching those movies. I'm like, you know, no wonder our kids are growing up depressed, you know, because this isn't reality. Um, but there is this uh, idea called uh, social imaginary. And, the, and it's, a, it's a term that's, that's um, kind of come to, come to, to uh, describe all of our acceptance of a world, or not necessarily our acceptance. We all just live in a world, and we, we embody its values and its ideas, and we don't necessarily think about them. I mean, the, 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 there are the elites at the top that kind of set these directions through, through art and through writing, and these things have been going for hundreds of years in terms of the trajectory. But this idea of a, of a social imaginary, we have in our minds the way things are, the way things should be, and ours in our secular age is an increasingly deceptive one. One of the aspects of it is that we, we see the world that we live in and we see human nature as primarily unfixed. We can do what we want <clears throat> with ourselves in this world and make this world in our lives what we think they should be. There's no... Um, fixed order to things. Uh, earlier ages were a little bit more humble in recognizing that there, there is a human nature and that there, there is a natural law and that we can't fight them. We've got to do our best to align our lives with things that we can't change. And so 
This is one of the big reasons why former ages um, acknowledged the, the existence of a supernatural and saw the need for a supernatural because they saw that the things in the world that they were facing, either within their own natures or things outside of themselves, uh, needed some supernatural power to, to corral and rally the forces of evil and, and darkness and our worst natures. Well, today... We, we have no God that cares for us. I mean, if you believe in God, that's okay. Um, but that's your own personal thing. It's, a, it's, it's recognized as a sentimental thing, what works for you. But there's really not a social imaginary that has been envisioned upon us that acknowledges cultural-wide the existence of, of a God and our need for him. But the world and our natures continue to confound us. We, I mean, clearly we're not able to control ourselves, and clearly we're not able to control this world. We're not who we would like us ourselves to be. The world is not like we would want it to be. And we recognize to some degree that we're all imposters, we're all suffering from imposter syndrome in trying to become what we would like to be and trying to make the world what we would like it to be. We're struggling with a sense of, of who we are. We're struggling with a sense of purpose. We're either looking inside for who we are and what we need to do, or we're looking outside, another dichotomy between former ages and the age that we're in, in trying to figure out who am I what is my meaning? What is my purpose? How do I fit into this larger whole? And as we've discussed before in prior sermons, this, this is where Moses is at. All right, he was born a Hebrew. At a young age, he became an Egyptian into the, to the house of Pharaoh himself, trained as an Egyptian, trained to be a leader, trained to being a military commander, educated in, in all of the best education and training of the day. But yet he is rejected by Egypt, when he kills the Egyptian that's abusing the Hebrew, the next day the Hebrews reject him because they don't want to submit to him either. So he's, he's exiled from Egypt. He's exiled from his Hebrew people. He makes it to Midian. He marries into a Midianite family, and then he names his first son Gershom, which means, I am a stranger in a strange land. So here is this man. Is he Hebrew? Is he, is, is he Egyptian? Is he a Midianite? He doesn't know. And so we've seen in, previ in, the, in, the, in the last couple of sermons, Moses comes face to face with God because God is going to call him. God is going to call him to deliver Israel from Egypt, but in this calling of him, God is also going to deliver Moses from his insecurities and fears about who he is, who he belongs to, and what his purpose and meaning is. And so Moses has been asked two questions to this point. So you remember, this was in Deirdre's sermon a couple weeks ago, um, Moses is shepherding sheep and He's on the, on the mountain, and God appears to him in this burning bush. And God says, okay, Moses, I'm going to have you deliver. I want you to lead Israel out of Egypt. 
And the first question Moses, so there's a series of questions and, and statements and rebuttals that Moses has here in his initial conversation with God. And the first question he says is, who am I to bring people, your people, out of Egypt? And God answers, but doesn't really answer. God doesn't answer his question, who am I? Moses is asking himself. God says, Moses, essentially it doesn't matter who you are. It's, what matters is who I am. He doesn't tell Moses it doesn't matter who you are. He just uh, Moses says, who, who am I, Lord God? And, and God says, I, God, will be with you. And then so Moses' next question, well, who are you? If you are going to be with me in leading these people out of Israel, and you're not really going to tell me who, who am I to do this, who are you to do this? And God's answer, Yahweh's answer was, I am who I am. I have always been, I will always be, I am the great I am, eternally existent, creator and sustainer of all things. And so Moses is still perplexed. This is where we come into our passage today. And he has three rebuttals to God's calling of him. Three disagreements, three questions and insecurities. There's a, and they express these three things, his fear of other people, his fear of man, Second, his, the fear of his own weaknesses and insecurities around his own weaknesses. And lastly, his own will, his own, his own determined self. And so let's look at these. So the first rebuttal, he says, Lord, they're not going to believe me that I talked to you, that you appeared to me. They're not going to listen to me. They're going to say, the Lord did not appear to you. And so, so Moses is, is expressing his, his, his fear of being alone, his, his fear of, of being vulnerable, his fear of being unbelieved. He's going to go tell the, the, the leaders of the nation of Israel, and really all the nation, I have met with God, and God is going to deliver you through me. Very insecure place to be. And so... God understands that this is a vulnerable position for Moses to be in. And he has no qualms with Moses raising this issue. He gives him two signs. The first sign is, is really the, shows God's power over life and death that he's going to dis- execute through Moses. And so uh, the staff turns into the snake and back into the staff. Moses is able to do that with the power of God. And so Moses, God is giving Moses this power. The second sign is that shows that God's power through Moses to, to, to heal the sick. Through the, his hand going into his coat, coming out leprous, and then back into his coat and coming out cleansed. And so God is showing that through Moses, he will demonstrate his power over life and death and over sickness and healing. And then God says... Through these signs, they will believe that I have appeared to you. So he is, he is meeting Moses where he's at, and he's saying, um, it will be clear through the power that I have given you that I am with you, that I am with you. So you're not going into this alone, Moses. I will be with you. So the second rebuttal then is Moses saying, if you're telling me that I have to speak, in leading Israel out of Egypt, that's not going to work. He says, I have two problems with my speaking. One, 
I really don't know what to say most of the time. And two, when I do come up with something to say, it comes out clumsily. It doesn't sound like I know what I'm talking about. I, I'm, I'm jarbled in my speech. If you want me to speak, Lord, this isn't going to happen. And so God pushes back a little bit this time. And he says, Moses, who gives human beings the ability to speak? Or who withdraws their ability to speak? Who gives them the ability to hear or to be deaf? He says, is it not I? And he says, I, and he makes two statements. One, I will be with your mouth. So I will give your mouth the ability to say what I want it to say. And two, I will teach you what to say. So your, your physical ability to speak, I'm going to empower. And what you're going to speak, I'm going to teach you. So, those, so now he has two fears. I will be with you and I will show the people through my power in you that I will be with you. And I will give you the ability to speak clearly the exact things I want you to say. All right, so these fears and insecurities that Moses has are God's kind of washing them away. Whether Moses believes it or not is another question, and the text doesn't tell us that, but except in the third rebuttal, Moses just finally comes out and says, listen, God, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Find somebody else to lead Israel out of Egypt. At this time, God gets angry. So no pushback from God the first time, a little pushback from God the second time. The third time, God is just flat out angry. But he doesn't let Moses out of his responsibility. He doesn't change Moses' calling. This is a non-negotiable. But he doesn't ignore Moses' weakness. He says, I'll tell you what, Moses. I'm going to send your brother Aaron along with you. The text doesn't say, but somehow or another, Aaron found out where Moses was at. Aaron's on his way out to visit Moses, and God's saying, listen, Aaron is on his way out. I'm just going to have him go with you. He will, be, he will be your prophet. You will be his God to him. I will tell you both what to say. I will empower both of your mouths. Now go. And Moses doesn't argue anymore. Now, none of us have been called as Moses has. None of, none of us have been called to such an extreme calling. I want you to lead several million people out from bondage and slavery. They've rejected you in the past. I want you to lead them anyway. And I, I want you to go to the oppressive, enslaving people, the most powerful military in the world, the largest government and reign in the world. And I want you to tell them to let your uh, several million people of free work to go, to release them. None of us have had anything like that in terms of a calling. And so I think oftentimes when we read these stories, we see these heroes, we see these figures in the Bible, and we, we, we kind of disconnect ourselves from them because these heroes of the faith, so to speak, are so far away from what 
what we are, what our experience is, that we don't see, we don't see some connections. But I think really there's a lot of connections. Let's examine them a little bit deeper here. So, you know, Moses is being called. God is calling Moses to a task. And in that task, Moses is going to become clearer about who he is, who he belongs to, and what his meaning and purpose in life is. And he's also, in, in, his, in the fulfilling of his task, is the nation of Israel going to become clearer about who they are as a nation, about what their calling and meaning as a nation is. And they're going to be delivered from slavery. So God is delivering the individual and God is delivering the nation. In these callings, and we need to think of calling in, 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 with two different aspects. There's a general calling, and then there we have specific callings. And so when I say general callings, what I'm talking about are callings that we as Christians are all called to at one level, and that yet they're, they're callings that God has called really all humanity to. These are non-negotiable. And so, and again, this is what he's called all humanity to, but once you come to know Jesus Christ and recognize that you are a child of God, these become the specific callings that he's given to us. It's, well, I didn't mean to use that term. These are the general callings that apply to all of us. We're all called to overcome sin. We're all called to overcome those things that bring harm to ourselves and bring harm to others. That's what the Bible calls sin and transgression and iniquity. If we harm ourselves or harm others, those are sins and transgressions and iniquities. We're all called to virtuous living, to live gracious and kind and generous and peaceful lives with one another, bearing others' burdens so that others can benefit. We're all called to be a part of the family of God. And again, these are, these are callings that God has really given all humanity. As his people, though, we have these as obligations to be a part of a church family, to recognize that, that we have obligations to each other, to love and to sacrifice for each other for the good of the other person. We're all called to live graciously in this world, to work hard in our, in our vocations, to, to press against the, the fall, so to speak, in our, in our work. And as employees, uh, to work hard with honesty and, and vigilance as employers, to treat our employees with, with care. Oh, these are obviously right out of the New Testament. We're all called to, to engage in good works in the world, showing the grace of God to the people of the world, to show that, like Christ, we've come to serve, we've come to serve others. We're all called to be witnesses to the gospel, to be ready to share why we have hope, why we love others at our own sacrifice. For those of us that are husbands and fathers, we're called to specific instructions about loving and caring for and protecting those who are in our care. If you are a wife or a mother, same sets of obligations that are specific to being a wife or a mother or children have ob specific obligations. So these are, these are large groupings of teachings and instructions that we as a whole are obligated to. They're not negotiable. They're not negotiable. If you, if you fit into these identities and categories as God's people, they are non-negotiable callings. But yet as individuals, we do have individual callings. God has put us within families, within nations, with 
gifts and capacities and skills and opportunities, and things aren't quite so clear, and that's really part of, the, of, of our joy of being a human being and a child of God is to discover what it is that God has gifted us and called us to do individually as we fulfill the general callings that, that we all share. And so we, I think, if we're honest with ourselves, and certainly I, and I don't think I'm alone, experience these same struggles as Moses. God reveals to us what he would like us to do, and yet we struggle. I mean, just in the last couple of weeks alone, I've heard both husbands and wives say, I'm afraid to talk to my spouse because I'm not sure how they're going to respond. I mean, how different is that from Moses' statement? God, I'm not sure they're going to believe me. And I don't want to stick my neck out there and become vulnerable because I'm not, I'm not sure of how they're going to respond. I mean, I, again, I think as, as husbands and, and wives, you all know that that is a feeling that you have had that has caused you to take action or not take action. I, just in the last few weeks, I've heard husbands and wives say, I'm not sure I can fulfill the obligations that God has put upon me to be the spouse that he's called me to be because I can't see myself overcoming these sins. I can't see myself overcoming these weaknesses. That's the same exact thing that Moses was saying. God, I have these weaknesses. I'm not sure I have the ability to do what you've called me to do. In the last few weeks, I'm not sure what my gifts are. I'm not sure what my calling is. I'm not sure how God is directing me. I'm not sure I can fulfill what, it, what God has called me to do as a, as a Christian in general, or specifically as a child of his, because I'm not, I'm not clear. I've heard people saying, just again in the last few weeks, I don't think I have the talent or the discipline to do the life that is set before me in my work or in my family. I'm not sure I can do it. I can see it out there. I can see my path. I, I've, I've, I've got the education and I've got some experience, but I'm really not clear about whether I can do that or not. People that, that talk about being alone, even though they're not alone. They have family. They have church family. They house church. They have friends. But there's this feeling of being alone still. So again, I don't... I don't think we're any different than Moses. I don't think that we're any different than, from Moses at all. And it's not just Moses, and it's not just Christians. I, this is all humanity. There, there's this, 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 this desire that we all have that has really emerged over the last 500 years since the Reformation, this desire to experience the, the, the full everyday life, which is best seen as, as life experienced through my family relationships and through my vocation. There was, there was such a, a pushback against the, the elite dominance in, the, in, in, Western, in, in Christendom, the emperor and the, the Catholic church, 
And what, what a lot of the reformers brought was this sense that, listen, we are all priests. God calls us all a nation of priests. God sees that not just there's these holy vocations and the rest of us are lowly. Every one of our vocations is is sacred, and, and we're all fulfilling God's calling. And so there was this, this massive uh, um, emphasis on all of us having a calling from God that is sacred and righteous and good. And so since and then the philosophers took that and began to start wanting to disconnect it from God. And, and now, look at what's happening from the standpoint of government and the state. A lot of the things that we would classify as um, basics for carrying out everyday life have now become rights. There is a right to a minimum living wage. There is a right for everybody to enjoy marriage. The expansive child care support, maternity, paternity, Inclusion efforts in corporate and public spheres for everybody to be able to experience what is needed in everyday life, family and work. You, that's, our state is now increasingly seeing its responsibility to fulfill those things. Now, whether you agree with it or not isn't the point. The point is, is that you can see that our, our culture is increasingly wanting comprehensively, here's what it means to live the full experience of, of everyday life. Life. And if you couple that with the, the uh, example of Buster Moon, uh, anything you need to do to experience that is okay, as long as you experience it. But again, to some degree, and I think you know, fairly Buster Moon showed this as well, we're all weak and insecure about our ability to experience it. And we all know people that are extremely confident, extremely disciplined, extremely hardworking, seem to accomplish everything that they put their minds to do. There are a few people like that, but we all know if you get to know them, they are some of the most weak and insecure people around. They are striving so hard for the approval of others. So how do we address these fears and insecurities so that we can realistically acknowledge, okay, I have a calling, I have some gifts, I have some desires and a vision for life, but I also have a lot of fears and insecurities about my ability to grab hold of that and fulfill it. Well, again, I think if we look at Moses, what Moses does can help. Now, I think our tendency, so we read these texts We read these texts, and whether it's about Moses or in a few weeks we're going to see some things about the nation of Israel, and you read it and you're just like, are you kidding me, Moses? God has revealed himself in a burning bush. He's talking to you. He's just turned your stick into a snake and back into a stick again. He's given you leprosy and then taken it away, and you're sitting here arguing with him? I think that's how we read it. Moses has got to be out of his mind. I would never do that, right? I would never act like Moses did. We're going we're to see the Israelites complaining as they go through the desert after they have seen God destroy the largest army on earth by standing up two mountains of water through by wind as they walked through. And you're like, how could they doubt God? So I think we look on these stories and we, we judge the characters because... We don't think we'd ever do what they did. But I think that we need to be more gracious in in reading and more cautious and thoughtful. 
Because if we, if we take a step back, what Moses is being is honest and wholehearted. I don't, I don't think he's trying to hide anything. He's honest about where he's at. Uh, you know, the, the book of Hebrews later says that Moses was an educated, well-read, and articulate speaker. So either God made him that way after this, or he just really sees himself as not able and not up to the task, even with his exceptional skills. Again, he's being honest and wholehearted. We, we know from, and this is one of the themes that's emerged over this series, from the beginning of Abraham's call, God called Abraham, I want you to be wholehearted, which really means honest. Moses is being honest with God. He's not trying to be somebody he's not. He's not trying to, to please God in a way that covers up, oh, yes, God, I can do it. And not being honest about his weaknesses. He said, I can't do it. I have these weaknesses. I have these fears. Find somebody else. He's not clear about who he is or what he's called to do. Uh, but he certainly isn't going to do what God's asking him to do because that can't possibly be for me. So now he's a stranger in a strange land, but he has a calling. He's not convinced he can do it, but God has made promises to him and God's not going to let him out of it. Now God's promises to Moses are very similar to God's promises to us. To all people, if they come to him in a wholehearted and honest way. To all people. You know, what's interesting about this desire for a fulfilling and everyday life experience, a fulfilling life in family and fulfilling life in work. You know, I was thinking because I'm, 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 I'm reading some, a few books on this that have come out lately. And I'm reading one book that's, that's kind of moving away from where some of the the dominant thinking is uh, philosophically, a lot, of the, a lot of the philosophical thinking right now, as they look at our times and what's different between now and the past and societal collapse and all these kinds of things, is, is, a, is a strong recognition that a lot of the things that make Western democratic life possible are built on Christian biblical ideas. And the big question from Christian and secular philosophers is, are we going to be able to hold to these ideals without the roots? Can we have what we've come to know as a Western liberal democracy in the broadest understanding of it? Can we have the fruit of those things without the root of those things? Can we leave God and have the fruits of what it was like when we had God. And so some, some philosophers are writing, here's an alternative way to approach this, leaving God behind. Trying to answer that question, can we do it without God or not? And I was thinking, and, and so you know, they're developing their thinking out of, out of you know, philosophers over the last three or 400 years. But I was, I was thinking and, re and recollecting Solomon's book of Ecclesiastes, written thousands of years ago. 
You know, in, in Solomon's book of Ecclesiastes, which we've done, I think, a couple times in, in sermon series, which would be good to do again, you know, he addresses what, why do good people experience suffering? Why do wicked people seem to succeed and good people don't? Why is there oppression and injustice in the world? Uh, he addresses all of the big questions of life in this world. And he says, here's what I've concluded. That no person can do better than to enjoy the work of their hands, to enjoy their family that they have and the friends that, that they have, to enjoy the fruit of their labors in food and drink, and to, to acknowledge God exists and to follow his commands. That's, he says that's the sum of all things. It's this, it's this vision of what our philosophers are calling the full experience of everyday life, family, work, and the fruits of those things. Well, God has promised great promises to Moses, but they've been greatly expanded to us. Promise number one, God will show his power, showing that God is with him. Well, for us, God has, in his power, washed and forgiven and renewed us so that our past is no longer controlling our present or our future. And God has given us power so that we can live lives overcoming the evil in our world, whether we committed ourselves or it's committed against us, and become virtuous and righteous and to live rightly and good in this world. That's the prayer in Colossians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 1, that we would understand the power that God has given us to live out our calling as human beings. Number two, God will gift and empower him. Well, God has gifted us. He has fashioned each and every one of us with skills and capacities and spheres and limitations for a particular role and meaning in this world. And in Christ, we can overcome the harm that we do to ourselves and the harm that we do to others so that we can see those callings and those gifts and capacities come to really fruition. And then if you come to Christ, he's given us his Holy Spirit that then gifts us in other ways to contribute to the building up of the church and to fulfilling his mission. And again, we see throughout the New Testament, Jesus praying, the apostles praying, being examples for how we should be praying. Help us to know the gifts and the power that you have given to us to fulfill the calling that gives us hope. See, our callings shouldn't push us to a place of doubt or, or a place of insecurity. Our callings should be a source of hope. There's hope in our calling because God has empowered us to it, and it's a great mystery to solve what God has called us to be and how he's gifted us to fulfill it. And finally, his third promise, I'm going to bring some support around you. I'm bringing Aaron. But God has given us his family. He's given us the church so that we have a family. We have a people, not defined by, by race or ethnicity or, or color or nationality or anything except the blood of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God that he's put into everyone who 
believes in him. We are the family of God. God has given us to each other. And without each other, we can't do it. We can't do it. We can't do it. And he's also made us a part of him. We are one with the Father. We are one with the Son through the Spirit that indwells us. So we are never alone. Even when we feel like we're alone, we're never alone. None of us are like Moses, yet we're all like Moses. So again, instead of judging his reaction, let us see Moses, let us see his humility, because he's also heralded in Hebrews for his humility. And let us see his honesty. And that's really what God is calling us all to at a foundational level. Let's, Let's be wholehearted and honest about our fears and insecurities, and let us acknowledge that we need God. Let us acknowledge that we need God and not try to hide, not be imposters, just be honest. If we just continue to wallow in insecurity, fear, and unbelief, we're never going to experience the life. Or if we just continue to strive in our own power, working and working and working and working to overcome our fears and insecurities and to, be, to get approval from others, we'll never experience it. We must acknowledge our need before God honestly and believe in his promises. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for Moses. And thank you really, God, for what you're teaching through him and his part in the story and how we're going to continue to see these same ideals work out in this, in this nation of Israel. God, we, we pray that you would help us to be a wholehearted people as we, as we live life before you and each other and striving for what you've called us to to, di- to discover how you have, have gifted and called us and where our place in eternity is at uh, before you. In your son's name we pray, amen.